Okay, this is the first question I have. Okay. Where are we? Oh. You mean I have to talk about break arts? Yes. That's my friend, the fashion designer Liz Lang, at Grey Gardens, her estate in East Hampton, which was made famous by the Maisels Brothers' iconic documentary. The movie tells the story of Big Edie and Little Edie, two eccentric relatives of Jacqueline Kennedy who once lived in the house. Women with a singular sense of style and a misguided belief that they are still basking in the glow of Camelot when the truth is anything but. Do you, on the regular, stop yourself and be like, oh my God, it's Grey Gardens? You know, I don't. I mean, I'm very aware of the documentary, but I also just really love the house. I grew up going out to East Hampton. The houses that I remember from my childhood look like this house. The fact that it's Grey Gardens is just like almost the icing on the cake. The house is 10,000 square feet with a pool and a tennis court and acres of beautiful gardens all on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. Liz has always identified as rich. When I was growing up, I thought that we were the richest family in the United States. And it felt impossible that it would change, absolutely impossible. But just like the women in the movie Grey Gardens, what Liz expected from life and what her life turned out to be are two very different things. I'm Arielle Levy, and this is The Just Enough Family. If I were to say to my mother, are we rich? She'd say we're comfortable. But our private plane was a 727. We had a very large helicopter that we would take to the plane. Both my parents had their own car and driver. We had a very large apartment. We had a house in East Hampton. We had a different country house in Bedford. We had a ski house in Aspen. It was just very like, it, it was unusual. All this wealth was thanks to Liz's uncle, Saul Steinberg who made a fortune in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as a corporate raider with help from his little brother, Bob, Liz's father. Saul spotted a hole in the market for leasing office equipment and turned it into his first successful company, LeaseCo. It doesn't sound like much, but it was the beginning of an amazing run that created the Steinberg family fortune. He was the richest self-made person in the United States under the age of 30, by the time he was like 27. And he was supporting the entire family, my grandfather, my grandfather's brother, all his cousins, all his siblings, and everybody kind of worked for him. Or you could say that he worked for all of them. All the Steinbergs had lavish lifestyles because of what Saul accomplished. And they all lived on top of each other in a kind of opulent shtetl. But Saul lived the biggest. Jewish rich was new back then. Not for German Jews, but we were part of this other wave German Jews were almost like wasps. They had made money like the Loeb's and the Warbirds, but they were like very understated. And then came this group of, I guess, Russian Jews. My uncle was part of it. Very, very, very loud, very showy. And my family lived very similarly to that. And I was very well aware of the fact that if you were gonna say, hey, my friend Liz is joining us, you'd probably back then have said, 
Liz's family is crazy rich. I think if you had taken a poll in college and said, name the girl who is least likely to ever have a job, I would have said, oh, that has to be Liz Steinberg. That's the designer Jonathan Adler, who became friends with Liz at Brown University. They've been close for 30 years. Probably she'll like do an internship for a minute, marry a rich dude, live the life she's supposed to live. So I thought when she was doing the maternity line, I was like, that's great, like, go for it. It seemed like a super appropriate, like, cute kind of Lucy and Ethel starting a biz kind of a thing. Like a rich lady's amuse-bouche before, you know, settling into her appropriate life. Liz Lang maternity has revolutionized fashion for expectant mothers. The clothing line infuses maternity wear with high fashion. Liz Lang started the company nearly 10 years ago to provide comfortable maternity clothing for her friends. Now she sells her clothes in high-end boutiques and provides a more modest line as a designer partner for Target. I don't know how to put into words what a thing your brand was. I mean, it's hard to explain why good-looking, slinky, high-end maternity wear was such a big deal. What do you attribute that to? A couple things. The whole kind of fetishizing of motherhood was just happening at the same time that I started my brand, like mommy groups and mommy blogs. Is that what led you to start the brand? That you no. noticed that happening? I was not pregnant myself when I started the brand, which is super weird, but I was thinking about it. And I noticed that my friends were all getting pregnant and they are all complaining. There's nothing to wear. Even friends that weren't normally like big shoppers, they're buying this really expensive stuff like Donna Karen and Calvin Klein. Anything they can find that is stretchy, that is fitted, that looks more normal. And I'm saying to them like, why aren't you just going to regular, like I've heard of these maternity stores, why aren't you shopping there? Like, what are you doing? I took a look at what some of that stuff looked like. I was just curious. The clothes were so down market. The fabrics were hideous. I always used to joke that they were kind of like, don't stand too close to an open flame fabrics. They were styled like the woman herself was kind of morphing into a baby, like with bows and cute details. Peter Pan collars. Peter Pan collars. Little strings on each side that you were meant to tie in the back or tie in the front in a bow. And this was in the 90s when people were, the look was so clean. And like Armani. Armani. Yes, it was the years of Armani. You just wanted to be in a neutral color, very tailored. And then all of a sudden you're pregnant, you feel chemically like another species of humanoid, and then you're supposed to look- Like a freak. Like a dumpy freak. Exactly. Right, I mean, there wasn't high end. The clothing needed to look just like what women I knew liked to wear when they weren't pregnant. It needed to be made of fabrics that felt high end and just like the fabrics they liked to wear when they weren't pregnant, and that didn't exist. After graduating from Brown, both Liz and Jonathan started their own companies in New York City. Like her uncle Saul, Liz had a talent for identifying a gap in the market. I'd be like on my powder's wheel, talking to her on the phone, and I'd say, oh, can you talk? And she'd say, can't talk, slammed. And I'd say, how much do you have in this morning? It was like 11 a.m. She's like, 30,000, gotta go buy it. A one-room shop on the second floor that's doing $30,000 by 11 a.m. is a retail revolution. Like, those numbers simply do not exist. I thought she was crazy. That's Liz's mom, Kathy Steinberg. She knows a lot about retail. 
Kathy was once on a TV show about shoppers who spend over a million dollars a year. Now, I would understand if Prada decided to be opened by appointment, but Liz Lang was not Mutual Prada. And I remember saying or thinking, who is going to make an appointment? I just didn't think the way she was rolling it out could possibly work. The brand was nothing. It was Wizard of Oz. It was me in a small office seeing women one at a time. But all of a sudden, I was in Vogue, or this huge spread in People magazine with Cindy Crawford. And Cindy also was on TV every week. And she would open her closet and be like, there's this woman in New York named Liz Lang who's making clothes for me. And then my answering machine at the office would be on can't accept any more messages. I always think if I was watching a movie in my life, I'd watch like that whirlwind thing that they sometimes show in a montage. Like it all happened so fast. It went from, oh, I have my cousin Liz. Great. You know, to my cousin is Liz Lang. Liz Lang. Wow. That's amazing. What a smart idea. I love her stuff. All of a sudden, she was kind of a celebrity. That's Laura, Liz's cousin and Saul's daughter. Laura grew up with an expectation that she'd go into business and do something innovative, too. Being an entrepreneur in our family is something that comes very naturally. Just talk to me about that for, for a second. How was that in the ether of your family? How did you know that was kind of what one did? I mean, the story of starting Lisco was I knew a big deal that whole concept of coming up with a new business model was a big, big part of our childhood. I mean, we were surrounded by people who were doing things a little differently. We would do our Seder every year with who I called Uncle Ronnie, but it was Ron Perlman and Carl Icahn and like all the corporate raiders of the 80s. Everybody in my parents' world was a thing in the business world. Like the way celebrities must all hang out together. Like that was just who they knew. And what did the women do? I didn't know any friends of my parents' uh, wives. No, none of the women worked, right. none of them. Oh, no, no, I know. But what'd they do with their, how'd they spend the day? See, I never really was clear on that because I always joked, people always be like, oh, so your mother was a homemaker. I'm like, well, no, she, no, she wasn't a homemaker. I mean, I think of my mother like, you know, out shopping on the phone, like when I would come home, my mother would usually be sitting on her chaise lounge in her bedroom. She wasn't a big smoker, but she always had like one cigarette a day. And she'd be on the phone with her friends. This is what's really strange about it. I actually thought it was a great life. That's, I think, also why when I started Liz Lang maternity that I wasn't certain it was just going to be my career because I didn't have a lot of role models, not in a bad way. Again, like no complaints. That just wasn't the way I looked at the world because my right. mom and her friends didn't work. You never thought, oh, this is inadequate. I need more stimulation than this. No, I don't recall them complaining. I know there's a lot today women wrote about it in the 70s. They were unsatisfied, but that wasn't, I didn't. If that's maybe true, they weren't rich. <laughs> they didn't see it to me. It seemed really yeah. great. Yeah, that's yeah, the way yeah, it yeah, seemed yeah. to my, again, like my little girl eyes. Like it all looked kind of fun. So you were going to make clothes for other Upper East Side ladies. It that's for what fancy I ladies. Right. Well, that's the other really interesting part. So that was my conception. I thought, well, this is going to be for all the, I don't know, ladies who lunch and my, you know, rich, fancy friends. But really, really quickly, it became apparent to me that actually my best customers and really my bread and butter were like working women. And this is like sort of feministy, but true. They would basically be like, I cannot face the sea of men who already think it's weird that I'm pregnant. 
at my job in investment banking or my job at a law firm and come in in some weird pink item with big bows on it and say, here, I'm, I'm here to help. I can't do it. Like the stories and the letters that I used to get from women. You have changed my life. I couldn't have kept my job. I was so humiliated, but you made me feel normal. Like things that literally like still to this day move me. I was about to say, like as much as you don't like the term feminist, I can't help it. It smells a little bit really empower. I mean, surely you feel proud. Ended up being really empowering for women. And that part is so cool. And I am so proud. So you are actually okay with that. You don't want to be called a feminist, but you don't object. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to, to disempower <laughs> women. Let's say that. I wasn't trying to disempower them. I don't think I fully understood how humiliated women were feeling. I knew they didn't like the clothes. And here I was on the most superficial level, never having been pregnant, being like, I'm not going to wear that when I'm pregnant in six months. No way. And then I realized it was so much bigger than that. Then it became almost like a movement. Liz changed the way people thought about maternity wear. She created a whole new idea of how a pregnant woman should look. She was so successful, so beloved by women, that companies like Target and Nike wanted to collaborate with Liz on maternity lines of their own. So it was 1999, and I got a call from someone who identified herself as an executive at Nike. And the head of like Nike women's basically said, we are having trouble at Nike. Like we're having trouble with female customers. So I was thinking like, you are? We're having trouble with female customers. So we've been doing a lot of market research about who the female customers trust the most. I'm thinking like, I don't know, Tampax, like what's the most trusted brand? And they were like, and you know, your name keeps coming up. And that was like such a crazy moment, almost like I was being punked. And you didn't even have a store yet? No. I had an office where people could come see me by appointment, literally. While Liz's star is rising, she also becomes a mom. She has two children, Gus and Alice, with her first husband, Jeff Lang. And basically, everything is going her way. Her life is exceeding her fantasies. Looking back on it, it was so cool. That might have been like when I think about like the apex of everything. I was very happy. I was just, things were great. I had a one-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. It was the summer of 2001. I was preparing for my first ever runway show, which was huge, like absolutely huge, indescribably so. I had that date circled on my calendar. I was gonna be part of this New York Fashion Week doing the first ever maternity fashion show. Real models who just happen to be pregnant. Famous models who happen to be pregnant, exactly. Everything about it, just like a regular show, but it just happened to be a maternity show. Leather, lace, and everything in between, it is all moving down the catwalk at Fashion Week in New York. And CNN's Gail O'Neill has been braving the crowds to see what some of us, at least, are going to be wearing, maybe the most pregnant of us. Morning, Gail. Morning, Carol. I'll tell you, this is the biggest media crush I've seen so far, and it's all over maternity wear. I'm backstage at the Liz Lang Maternity Show, and it's rock and roll back here. We have media from all over the world. There's been huge buzz surrounding the show. Here we have the designer, Liz Lang herself. Liz, tell me, why is it so important for women to shop for this very small window of their lives? Because you know what? It's not such a small window. It's nine months, and then it's a few months when you're trying to get your body back. And it's, you know, you're talking about almost a year. Why would a woman want to take a year off of looking fashionable, feeling pretty, feeling great, feeling sexy. She needs to celebrate this time. Every media outlet that you can imagine, the way you're here right now with a microphone, was there trying to shove a microphone in my face every minute, like crazy. And I thought, this is my moment. This is like the Oscars. 
But I noticed that like halfway through the show, I can see, because I'm standing backstage, that the CNN TV cameras and the Good Morning America TV cameras are literally just racing out of the tents. And then I will never forget that I walked out onto the street and the world had changed. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story. For thousands of New Yorkers, September 11th was a personal tragedy. For all of us, it was a day that separated life into before and after. It started like the best year of my life, and it ended, I'd say, like the fourth quarter of that year, the worst time of my life. Everything that I thought was just a given became not a given. Everything, my health, my finances, my business, my family. That year was like perestroika. I was 35, and I was beyond completely fine. Like there was zipping nothing wrong, zipping through life, like a barrel of energy. But I had had like a weird pap smear that didn't even register in my mind as a problem. Cut to, it's Columbus Day. And I see I have a message from my OBGYN saying, hey Liz, you know, we're trying to reach you. And at that moment, it was like my heart stopped. I was like, they would never try to reach me on a holiday unless something was terrible. So I, almost with my hand shaking, call back my doctor and I'll never forget he just picked up the phone and said, well, I don't have good news. He said, you have cervical cancer. And I was like, this is embarrassing, but I barely knew what cervical cancer was. You know, I had a radical hysterectomy. I was in the hospital for weeks. I underwent chemotherapy and radiation and they did them at the same time, which is extraordinarily debilitating. I was sick and I was tired and I was so scared and I was scared both of my own death and of other people finding out. It was at the time where I was probably the most well-known. And for some reason, radiation was seven days a week. So I went every single morning at like seven in the morning down to the basement of Mount Sinai. When you got there, you would check it. Like you'd say, I'm Liz Lang, I'm here for radiation. And so when it was your turn, they would call out your name. So one day I was down there and when the receptionist called out Liz Lang, a lot of heads kind of whipped her, like it, it was a moment. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I still remember it. Like I can picture that moment. Word was somehow going to get out that I was sick. I didn't want people in my world and in my office, in my business life to know because everybody would think I was dying and totally lose confidence in the business. I hated the idea that people would feel sorry for me. It was way overdone, but that's the way it felt. What is so ghastly about the idea of people feeling sorry for you? Yeah, I don't totally know why but I always was very aware of the fact that there was a lot on paper or from the outside world about my family that looked very charmed. Not that things were so, so, so terrible. They weren't. But the reality, like every reality, wasn't exactly sparkly. You know, I just knew that things weren't exactly as they appeared. And I became overly invested and this is probably not what you were looking for, it's like a too deep of an answer, but I became overly invested, which I was really never able to shake in the idea that even if things aren't so good, at least let them look good. At least let people from the outside be envious. Feeling sorry for me would be the opposite of what I was used to, where everyone was like, oh, like Liz Steinberg, have you seen her apartment? And it was just a lot of buzz around us. And at that same time period, that is the time period that my family is losing its money. 
I don't remember where the repo man coming to my door fits in, but I've got to imagine that I'm home from the hospital in the middle of my chemo and radiation when that happened. And what did that look like? I had bills, American Express bills and other things that I sent to my father's secretary at his office because like, that's what I did. And then like a couple times, bills weren't getting paid like as fast as I would have wanted them to. And I was like calling my dad's secretary, like what's going on? And she was like, no, no, you know, I'm gonna pay it. I'm just paying this one first. And I was thinking like, paying it first? Well, just pay them together, okay? Because like, this is weird. Then one day I'm in my beautiful big apartment and there's a knock on the door. And it's some strange guy who I think, cause I don't think I knew the word prior to that, is looking for me and he's repossessing my cars. And I was like, there has been a big mistake. You just need to call my father. Like I was that person. I'm not that person today, but it's like, this is literally impossible. The next thing I knew, my dad wasn't paying any of these things. At that point in my life, my husband was making some money. I had Liz Lang maternity, but the lifestyle we were leading was bigger than that. It was a really tense time. Like, I had cancer. We've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. The business that had been the family business, the multi-billion dollar business was publicly going bankrupt and literally disappearing before our very eyes. And so that's when the family fractures? Fracture is the understatement of the year. What happens? So we went from being like extremely close. We spent every holiday together. We were just always together. There was something so mooring about being part of my family like on the high holidays. When we went to Central Synagogue, which was sort of one of the centers of like rich Jewish life. And when we went there, everybody wanted to say hello to my parents. Everybody wanted to curry favor. Everybody wanted to be nice. House all, what's going on? We would sit with my uncle and we all sat together. We'd go afterwards like to Chinese food for lunch, like everything, like everywhere we went. And then everything changed. When money is good, everyone gets along. The minute you see money issues, that's when you start seeing major fights. And my family fell apart, like fell apart. No one was speaking, everybody was angry. We were like being humiliated, left, right, et cetera. There were tons of articles. Like if you Googled it, you'd see, I think our family's collapse was profiled in Vanity Fair and possibly New York Magazine. They were always bold-faced names, but when their business collapsed, the press covered the Steinbergs relentlessly. Here's how Vanity Fair describes Saul and his third wife in that piece about their downfall, which was called Vanished Opulence. Using his huge fortune, at times estimated to have been nearly a billion dollars, Saul and Gayfred had become the king and queen of Nouvelle society. Just what happened to Saul Steinberg's money is a question the Steinberg's friends wish people would stop asking. It's just like it was this overarching, looming thing how rich we were, how smart my uncle was, what an incredible business person he was. I was so worshipful. Everything that was presented to me in our family, I just swallowed completely whole. We are one of the richest families in the world that could never change. We're Steinbergs, like we are Steinbergs. We're made of money. when I was a child. I always felt like things felt strange and a little out of control, even though I don't know that I could put my finger on it. 
So because I wanted to be a writer, I was always writing this little story. And in the story, my name was Lisa, and Lisa lived with the Just Enough family. And the Just Enough family always had just enough. They weren't hurting, they could always get the next meal, but they had just enough, whereas we had way too much. The milk is out, I've barely been to college and I've been doubtful. The Just Enough family is co-created and written by executive producer Melinda Shopson, that's me, and Arielle Levy. Our editor is David Klagsbrun, and our other executive producer is Laura Mayer. We had additional help from archival researcher Laura Coxon, fact-checker Davi Kurtaba, transcriber Elijah Grossman, and assistant editor Allison Sirota. Our music supervisor is Jasmine Flott, and the show is mixed by Christopher Cook. For a transcript and full credits, please visit our website, thejustenoughfamily.com. Treasure,